old friend Brian used to say, saints of the most high priesthood or saints of the royal priesthood. And we're gonna talk about that tonight. Jesus is our great high priest. But remember, as we talked about Sunday morning, he is our great high priest of a different order than that of Aaron and the Levites. Psalm 110, verse four, spoken prophetically, but after the law was given, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, far preceding Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. And what we saw and talked about on Sunday, it was that just as Jesus is the high priest of this eternal order, so we are priests of that order. As his priesthood, we even know now what our priestly order is. We are of the Melchizedekian order. Tell that to your friends at work. <laughs> I'm of the Melchizedekian order. The Bible says in Revelation 1.6, he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever, amen. And that's, that's not just a metaphorical priesthood for the church in this age. That is a literal, actual functional priesthood in the coming kingdom. What we are created for, what we're made for, and what we are being trained up for even now. So our priesthood is not limited Levitical in scope, it's measureless Melchizedekian in its range, in, in its order. Now it's not to demean the ironic priesthood. When I say ironic, you know I'm not saying ironic. I'm saying Aaronic as in Aaron the Aaronic priesthood, and I don't demean that priesthood or the, the Levitical priesthood of Israel that God is establishing even here in Exodus 28, 29, 30. But it also doesn't mean that we can't learn or draw illusions from the Levitical priesthood. We are of a different order, yes, but we are a priesthood, and so were they. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so we learn. So we see the example. And while our priesthood is different and unique under the high priest Jesus rather than the high priest Aaron, yet we can look at the Levitical priesthood and draw comparisons and parallels and illusions and, and pictures and types that help us comprehend our priesthood even better. So far, we have learned that it's clothing first, consecration second. Clothing first, consecration second. First, you gotta get clothed, and then you get consecrated. If you look back at chapter 28, let me pick up a couple of verses from there to lead us forward. Chapter 28, verse 41 the Lord said to Moses, you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him. Put what on him? The ephod, the breastpiece on the ephod, remember? And of course then the robe and the tunic and the turban with the miter or the crown on it and the sash around it and all the design of that that we talked about Sunday that's in Exodus chapter 28, put it on Aaron and on his sons, the very simple linen tunic that was long-sleeved, went down to the ankles, and the tunic belt and the little linen, or the, the, sorry, the linen belt and the little linen cap, and of course, linen breeches, just for modesty's sake, and all of that, get them dressed, put the clothes on them. But now we step out of the priestly wardrobe of Exodus 28. 
and into God's manual for the priestly consecration. Now understand, as we read this, they're not being consecrated. God's giving Moses the manual on the mountain for how they are to be consecrated, and we'll see the consecration take place in Leviticus 8, 9, and 10. That's where it actually happens. This is simply God's manual, his preparation, his training for it. And so picking up in Exodus 29, verse 1, He says, now, this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, to minister as priests to me. Take one bull and two rams without blemish. So we're gonna see three animals that are gonna be dealt with, offered up, actually, in this chapter. A bull and two rams. God says, I want you to get these because we're going into a consecration to consecrate them as ministers. Consecrate is the word kades, which is from kadosh, which is to make holy, kadesh, I'm gonna make them holy, set them apart, remove them from the average daily people and make them something unique here, consecrate them. So he says, take the one bull, the two rams, and unleavened bread with unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers spread with oil and you shall make them a fine wheat flour. And you shall put them in one basket and present them in the basket along with the bull and the two rams. Now, the bull and the two rams are not gonna go in the basket. Just wanna clarify that for you. The basket will hold the fine cakes that are spread with the oil, and along with that, they're also offering up the bull and the two rams. And you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the doorway of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. And you shall take the garments and Put on Aaron the tunic and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. Then you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. I like how it says pour it on his head. I mean, it reminds me of Les wanting to get a bucket of anointing oil for the next time he does anointing. And I'm good with that. And you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them. You shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, and bind caps on them, and they shall have the priesthood by a perpetual statute. So you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Wait, what? You shall ordain them. I thought we were consecrating them. See, verse one is that word consecrate. Again, kades, make make them holy. Well, now he says you're gonna ordain them. That's a different word, different meaning, and we're gonna come back to it in a little bit. But I want you to note the order. Even as we wander into chapter 29, a very interesting order, pulling out of 28 and coming into 29, that the very first thing they do is they are to come to the Lord. Go get them, bring them to me. They come to the Lord. Second thing is they get clean as they're all washed. Third thing is then they get clothed in the priestly clothing, and then as we'll soon see, they're going to enter into, number five, a costly ministry. Now, if you say, well, Rick, what about number four? We'll get to number four. But right now, what I'm telling you, I'm kind of giving you an outline for the teaching, but the first three we just already did, come to the Lord, get clean, get clothed. We're gonna end up with a costly ministry, and then there's a fourth one, and the fourth and the fifth in this little list are where we're gonna spend our time tonight. But does this sound familiar? Come to the Lord, number one. Get clean, two. Then get clothed, third. And then there's a fourth one and the fifth one. They enter into a costly ministry. We come, we come to Jesus. 
Romans 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. We come to the Lord Jesus and then we get clean. Galatians 3.27. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. We come, we get clean, we get clothed. Colossians 3.12 through 14 says, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. Put on kindness, put on humility, Put on gentleness, put on patience. These are the things that the priest of this priesthood, of the Christ priesthood, the Melchizedekian priesthood, this is what we wear. Put on patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love. That is the outer mantle that covers all the rest, which is the perfect bond of unity. So put on, we come, we get clean, and then we get clothed. But before we get to the costly ministry, number five, we come to number four in the list. We get something else. They get something else here as a priesthood, a chrisma of anointing. Chrisma, how do I spell that? Just like Christmas, leave off the S. Uh, A chrisma of anointing, look at chapter 29, verse seven again. Then you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. For you Bible students, you know where we're going, you know what this means, but if you've never heard this, to anoint is mashach in the Hebrew. And it is the root of Mashiach, Messiah. Because Messiah is the anointed one. And that's what Mashiach means, Mashiach, Messiah, the anointed one, Christ, We say Jesus Christ. What we're saying is Jesus, the anointed one. Christ is from chrisma, which is the Greek word for the same thing, the anointing, and literally it means to daub or to smear as in anointing oil. That's Christ. And so those of the priesthood of Christ are all anointed. We all receive a chrisma, a chrisma of anointing a daubing, a smearing of anointing, all of us. I wanna say that one more time because I don't want anybody to miss this. All are anointed in Christ. You ever hear somebody say, oh, he has such an anointing on him or she is so anointed as if they've got something you don't? As if some have more or or better than what you've got in Christ, my friends, you have an anointing. You are anointed ones. We need to reject the Christian comparisons that sometimes plague us and receive the chrisma that was given to you in Christ Jesus. Doesn't mean you're switching over to a Pentecostal church either. Doesn't matter. The funny thing to me is there are people who have the anointing and they have no idea. There are people who are cessationists who don't believe that the Holy Spirit even functions in the church anymore. They have an anointing. They just don't realize it. The Bible is clear on this. If you come to Christ, if you claim Jesus, you have an anointing. In fact, the way the Apostle John wrote it, 1 John 2, verse 20, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. Now, some today don't know. But as John is writing to those recipients in the first century saying, you know this, this is not, nothing new. It's no big surprise, you have 
an anointing. You have a chrisma from the Christ, an anointing from the anointed one. He says down in verse 26 of 1 John chapter 2, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. And there's a whole lot of deception going on right now in the world and even in the church. I'm writing to you about this, John says. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. Two words that go very well together, anointing and abide. Anointing and abide. You see, the anointing of Christ has to do with his abiding. The anointing which you receive from him abides in you and you have no need of anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught, has taught you, you abide in him. He anoints you because he abides in you and you abide in him. And that anointing which you have as a follower of Jesus by trusting Jesus with your life that anointing allows you not to be deceived. In this media crazy world, what's the truth and what's the lie? How can I tell what's right and what's wrong? How do I discern these things? You have an anointing, the anointing of Christ. To my mind, that means anytime I'm uncertain, if I take it to Jesus, I'm gonna get the answer. If I pray, if I'm asking, Lord Jesus, help me comprehend the world around me to make wise decisions and, and right decisions and not to be deceived. You're not gonna be deceived if you have the anointing of Jesus and you know you do because his anointing that you've received, man, you receive from him who abides in you and the anointing abides in you and so you abide in him. In verse 28, John says, now little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming if you know that he, that is Christ, is righteous, you also know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Listen, this Christmas, you know, that the, the priests were anointed. Aaron and sons were anointed. So are you in Christ. Same idea here. You have this anointing. And this Christmas causes us to abide in him. To, to, to go to him, to dwell with him, to look for him, to want to be with him. And as we abide in him by this anointing, guess what happens? It stimulates practical righteousness. The anointing and the presence of Christ causes us to be aware of what's right and what is not. Well, I'm not talking about some kind of mystical thing, and yet it is a supernatural thing. This chrisma, yes, it is supernatural because it comes from a supernatural God. And he pours this anointing on us. And if you have the Christ, you have the chrisma. Those who don't function in that, those who are stale and dry and uncertain, well, they're just not accepting that they already have the anointing. They're ignoring it or denying it or unaware of it. But if you have the Christ, you have the chrisma. That is to say that Jesus concurrently abides with and he anoints his priests. You're called to be a royal priesthood. That is in preparation right now. And if you're in preparation for the priesthood, you are anointed. The great high priest abiding with you, the great high priest anointing you. And that all might sound like, okay, that's biblical, 
teaching. I'm, I'm still not sure exactly what that means. What does that look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. A hymn. A hymn. I, I don't mean a <clears throat> hymn, uh, and I don't mean a hymn like a hymn that we would sing. H-E-M, as in the hymn of the high priest's blue robe. Why don't you turn back there for a second and look at that in Exodus chapter 28. We made mention of this on Sunday, Exodus 28, verse 33. And it says, you shall make on its hem, that is this blue robe of the high priest, you shall make on its hem pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet material all around its hem, and bells of gold between them all around. So pomegranate bell, pomegranate bell, pomegranate bell, all the way around the hem. A golden bell, verse 34, and a pomegranate. And a golden bell and a pomegranate all around on the hem, he says, of the robe. And there's such a picture here. Again, we're of a different priesthood, and yet there's something similar. We're anointed like they're anointed, and there's something about this anointing that is similar in both priesthoods. What goes around the hem. Remember, this was a simple blue robe. Beautiful, but, but very simple and basic, all blue, until you get down to the hem. It wasn't all bells and whistles, but it was all bells and pomegranates on that hymn, as we just read. This sweet picture typifies how those of the anointed priesthood of Christ are to function. We can understand our functionality from the hymn of the high priest's robe. How so? Think about the pomegranates, first of all. What, what are pomegranates? They're a fruit. A fruit. That should give away where we're going right there. Pomegranates, and they would be little material pomegranates of blue and again of scarlet and, and of, of purple all the way around this robe. And then the bells in between. But these pomegranates, these little, little fruits all around the hymn. You know that pomegranates are a favorite treat on Rosh Hashanah? Rosh Hashanah just happened this past weekend. You know, we say Yom Teruah, the, the day of trumpets, but Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year in Hebrew, and they celebrate the, the Jewish New Year at Rosh Hashanah, and one of the favorite things to eat at Rosh Hashanah is the pomegranate. I remember my first pomegranate. I was out on the playground in like the third grade, and someone had one. I'm like, what is that bizarre thing? And they cracked it open, and it was even more bizarre because there's all this, these little pouches here. And my friend said, try one, and I tried it. It blew me away. I couldn't believe it was so sweet. And the Jewish people love the pomegranate on Rosh Hashanah. Why? Because the rabbis teach that every pomegranate has exactly 613 seeds inside of it. The number of the law. 613 laws in Torah as they're written down. Is that true? Are there only 613 and exactly 613 seeds in every pomegranate? No, <laughs> Actually, the record, I believe, is 1,370 seeds. And in a typical pomegranate, you're gonna have between six and 800 pomegranate seeds, those sweet little seeds. And think about those, though. Those seeds are held in, in little sacks of sweet blood-red juice. And each of these are capable of producing more fruit, which makes the pomegranate, with so many seeds, among the most 
productive of all fruit. And God says, I want that on the hem of the high priest's robe. I want that fruit there. Because the person who has the anointing, the chrisma of Christ, is going to be fruitful. John 15, 4, Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. Remember what John wrote in 1 John 2, that he abides in you and he anoints you. You have the abiding of the high priest Jesus, you have the anointing of the high priest Jesus, and Jesus had said, abide in me and I in you. No doubt John was remembering that. And in John 15, verse four, continuing, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, Jesus said, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, Jesus said. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, you know what he does, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do Nothing. Man, think, keep that in mind tonight. Apart from me, you can do nothing. To be the priesthood of Christ, having received the chrisma of Christ, we cannot function without him. We can do nothing of any value, of any significance or worth without him, apart from him. And that's how abiding and anointing work together. We abide in him, he anoints us, we bear fruit. And so you might just jot this down that the pomegranates on the hem of the robe indicate spiritual fruit. We're anointed and we begin to produce spiritual fruit. Galatians 5.22, we have to go there. The fruit of the Spirit, singular, because it's all his fruit, it's all produced by him, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Nine different types of fruit, one tree, if you will, one spirit who causes this fruit by the anointing. It's the anointing of the spirit of Christ that causes us to be fruitful. And I love the picture. And the reason why, by the way, I quote Galatians 5, 22 and 23 so often is because we need to think in terms of that is our fruitfulness. That's our production. It's not how many rear ends we can get in the seats of a church. That, that's not the production of fruitfulness. I was once asked by a pastor, just bugged me. Back when I was youth pastor, back in my youth pastor days, he said, I wanna see your ministry be more fruitful. And I'm like, define fruitful. I wanna see more kids in your group. Okay, that's not fruitfulness, not by the biblical standard. No, it's love, joy, peace. Learn the list. Man, memorize the list because that's the fruit that we're called to bear. Well, wait a minute, Rick, that, that's great, pomegranates. But it's not just pomegranates, is it? It's pomegranates and it's bells. What do the bells represent? If the pomegranates are a picture of the fruitfulness, and that makes sense because they're fruit, what about the bells? Well, listen to the description of the bells. Verse 35 of Exodus 28, and I tricked you. We went back into 28 for a little while. It shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its tinkling shall be heard when he enters and leaves the holy place before the Lord so that he will not die. My friends, the bell was a symbol, a reminder, a witness, if you will, that the priest was alive. You'd hear the jingling of it, and you knew 
He's okay. He's actually alive in there, moving about, doing his priestly ministry. So what does that tell us? Well, if the pomegranates on the hymn indicate spiritual fruit, the bells on the hymn indicate spiritual gifts. Because the gifts of the Spirit testify to a priest alive. Functioning in the gifts, flowing in the gifts of the Spirit, given by the Spirit, that shows us as alive in Christ. Living, breathing, active for Jesus in this world. Bearing, producing spiritual fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, on you go. But also proof, the witness, the testimony by the gifts of one alive in Christ, which is why the spiritual gifts are so important and why I'm gonna read to you now from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you'd like to turn there, jump over there, but I'm gonna go ahead and start with or without you. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse one, Paul said, concerning the spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. Now, he doesn't use the word gifts, by the way. He just says, concerning the spirituals, the pneumatikos in the Greek, Concerning these things, though, Paul says, you got to be aware. He's not talking about spiritual fruit. He'll talk about that in Galatians, or at this point, probably already had. But now he's talking about the pneumatikos, the spirituals. And he begins to define them. And in fact, in verse four, he says, there are varieties of gifts, where he does use the word gift, but the same spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. So just like the spiritual fruit, it's singular fruit, but there are nine different varieties of this fruit because it comes from the one and same spirit. So it is with the gifts. There are all kinds of gifts and effects and ministries, varieties, but there's one God who gives them. And I love that Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. That's why the gifts are given, so that the body can function alive. A testimony of the presence of Christ in the body of Christ that is living and active and the Spirit gives to each one as as he wills. In fact, skip on down verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 12. For even as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And by the way, that's not the local Baptist church. You're not baptized into the Bridge Christian Fellowship. You're baptized into the body of Christ. It's one body, not all broken up. Yeah, several different members, but one body. And we were baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit, for the body is not one member, he says, but, but many. Like the bells on the hem of the robe, the gifts of the spirit bear witness to a body that's alive, a body that's vibrant with effective ministry. But listen, get this, it is not a ministry, it is not a body, of bells and whistles. And that's where sometimes we get a little confused. It's bells and pomegranates, not bells and whistles. Skip down to verse 31 of 1 Corinthians 12, and you can study that whole chapter out more on your own. But Paul, after discussing these gifts and explaining the gifts and how the Spirit gives to each one as he wills, Paul comes back and says, but earnestly desire 
the greater gifts. Wait, they're greater than even what he listed here? There's, there's, there's better? And he says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Listen to this. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, or we might say a bunch of out-of-control bells. Isn't it interesting that around the hem of the high priest's robe, it's bell, fruit, bell, fruit, going all the way around the robe. So in between the bells, you've got this little soft material piece of fruit, this little soft material pomegranate. So the bells will make noise, they'll ring, but they're not gonna clank against each other and make all kinds of racket. It'll be a soft jingling that is softened by the, by the fruit, the spiritual gifts, the spiritual fruit brings a softness and an application even of the gifts. If I have the gift of prophecy and all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. It's bell and fruit. It's gift and fruit functioning together. The gifts showing a body alive. And of course the fruit being the produce of that living organism of that body. Paul in Romans chapter 12 verse six says, we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. If prophecy, so if you have the gift of prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, so apparently service is a gift in his serving. Or, or, or he who teaches in his teaching. He who exhorts in his exhortation, that's a gift. He who gives with liberality, and I've known those who have the gift of giving. They just can't give enough. They continue to give more and more, and the more they give, the more God blesses them, so they just give more, and that's a spiritual gift, my friends. Here's another gift. He who leads with diligence. There's a gift of leadership. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. But then with all of these, as he did in 1 Corinthians 12, goes through the gifts and then lands at 1 Corinthians 13. So here in verse nine of Romans 12, he says, love without hypocrisy. You wanna be alive in Christ? You wanna move in the anointing that you have been given, the chrisma that is yours? Then what you do is you intersperse your spiritual gifts with your spiritual fruit, the fruit of love. And when Jesus returns, you'll be there with bells on. But I don't know what my spiritual gifts are, Rick. I, I don't know. Should I take one of those spiritual gift inventories? Hmm. I, I'm low test on those. I'll just be honest with you. I've taken a spiritual gift inventory or two in the past. I've gone through entire you know, programs in previous churches where we're all trying to figure out what our gifts were and you take the inventory and the test and it's the multiple choice and then you get the end of the test, they tell you what your gift is based on your answers and I'm not sure how accurate that is because it's not the man who gives the gift and it's not the man who graphs out, tests out or figures out the gift, it's the Holy Spirit. And sometimes he gives a gift that is not one you would expect. I'll tell you one thing, for me, in every spiritual gift inventory I ever took, I never came out with the gift of teaching. I didn't wanna be a teacher, which is kind of funny, because I love to teach now, and I love to study the word. And I'm not even that great a student. 
with anything else but this. Man, crack open a Bible these days and I can't get enough. But you should have seen me in college. It was my sophomore year when Cheryl, then my fiance, came out to school with me. It was my sophomore year before I even found where the library was. I went through my whole entire freshman year not knowing where the library was. I'm digressing here, but the point is this. I never came out with teaching as a spiritual gift until God gave that. And by the way, I'm not saying that because I think I'm all that as a teacher. I don't. But I know God has called me to this, and I know he's taught me to teach and wants me to teach. My point is, gifts are given. They are not inventoried. They're not figured out. They're not graphed on a chart. Well, okay, the fruit of the Spirit, I, I see that. I can, I can work on those things. No, you can't. <laughs> because they're the fruit of the Spirit. So even the fruit of the Spirit, you need to go ask. Ask him to begin to produce love first in your life. In fact, when love is produced in your life, you're gonna find out that joy follows. And the more love and the more joy you have, the more peace. And the more love and joy and peace that you have, the more patient. And the Spirit will do this. Go ask him. Pray, Lord, would you begin to produce your fruit in me? And he'll do it. But it's his work cultivating his Christmas, his anointing on you that produces that spiritual fruit. It's the same thing with the spiritual gifts. If you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, ask. Don't ask me. If you call me up and say, Rick, what do you think my spiritual gifts are? I will say, I don't have a clue. That's not my job to tell you what your spiritual gifts are. It is the Lord's. Matthew 7, 11, Jesus said, if you then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good in terms of gifts to those who ask him? Another time, Jesus was sharing the same principle. Luke chapter 11, verse 13, he said, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him, combining their gifts with the Spirit? They are the gifts of the Spirit. Are you with me here? <laughs> I'm looking into a camera and I'm asking you this question. I wanna be sure we're getting this. It's fruit and it's gift. It's pomegranate and it's bell and pomegranate and bell. And as these are interspersed together, as they are cultivated together, both the fruit and the gifts, that's our, that's our anointing. That's our chrisma. You have an anointing as you, and you know. And once given, and once received, the way to cultivate fruit and the way to utilize the spiritual gifts is very clear. And Jake talked about it at communion. Abide in the love of God. Abide in his love and love others. Love God, love people. And what you'll find is both the fruits and the gifts around the hem of your priestly robe will function beautifully, smoothly together, bell, pomegranate, bell, pomegranate. Gifts and fruit together as we were meant to function in our anointing. In fact, that's what I would call the abiding anointing. Christ abiding in me, me abiding with him, the anointing upon me which brings about the, pro the production of fruit and the giving of gifts 
And so like Aaron's sons, back to the little outline that I began to give early on, we come to the Lord and we get clean and then we get clothed and again, we get that chrisma. Number four, we get the chrisma, the anointing as priests of this sainted priesthood and then, and then number five, fifth and final point. See how quickly we got to the last point this, this evening? And then we come to a costly ministry. A costly ministry because blood will be spilt. Verse 10. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Verse 10 of chapter 29 now, we're continuing on. Bring the bull before the tent of meeting and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. You shall slaughter the bull before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. You shall take some of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar. This is the, the brazen altar, the bronze altar of sacrifice. Put the blood on the horns of the altar, that big nine by nine foot altar out there in the middle of the courtyard. Put the blood on the horns. And then you shall pour all the blood at the base of the altar. You shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the lobe of the liver and the two kidneys and the fat that's on them. And you gotta get, really get your hands messy in this stuff and offer them up in smoke on the altar. But the flesh of the bull, watch this, the flesh of the bull and its hide and its refuse, you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. And this is the first time we've heard about this one. And it will be explained in a list given in the first five chapters of Leviticus. And I'm looking forward to talking about those. But this here, costly offering number one, is the sin offering. Five different offerings are gonna be given to Israel. We've looked at a couple before this that we're gonna see again, and now the sin offering, so three of the five. This first costly offering here for the priests as they're going to be consecrated, going to be ordained, is the sin offering. And this is where we begin to see some truly graphic comparisons. Not between Jesus and the high priest, or between us and the other priests, but graphic comparisons between the Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrifices. The sin offering. The one thing unique about this sin offering, it's burned outside the camp. Why is the sin offering burned outside the camp? Because Golgotha was outside Jerusalem. See, way ahead, 1,500 years ahead of time, prior to the coming of Jesus in his first coming. When Golgotha wasn't even a thing, oh, the stony mountainside was there. But Jerusalem, it was, it was Salem, it was a different deal. 1,500 years earlier, the sin offering must happen outside the camp and in the same way. John 19, 17, they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out. And the going out isn't going out of the fortress of Antonia. It's not going out from Pilate's presence. It's going outside the city. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all indicate this as well. In fact, one of the three gospels talks about as they're going out, a man named Simon of Cyrene is coming in from the country. And they run into him. And at that point, Jesus falls and can't carry the cross any further. And so the Romans, they grab Simon and say, you carry it. 
but he's coming in as they're going out. The point is they go outside of the city for the sacrifice to take place because on the cross, Jesus is our sin offering. The offering that takes place that is burned up by wrath outside of the camp. Golgotha. Well, how can you be sure? It sounds like you're not, you know, even in the Gospels, it doesn't say exactly that they went outside the city. Okay, let the Hebrew pastor explain it. Hebrews 13, 11, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest for sin, the sin offering, are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go to him outside the camp Bearing his reproach. Bearing his reproach. What does that mean? I'll answer that in just a second. Costly offering number two. So the first offering here for the high priest's consecration for his ordination is the sin offering. Costly offering number two is the burnt offering. Watch this, verse 15. The burnt offering. You shall also take one ram. So the bull is is now toast. (laughs) <laughs> and then you take the ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. You shall slaughter the ram and take its blood and sprinkle it around on the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into its pieces, wash its entrails and its legs, and put them with its pieces and its head, and you shall offer up in smoke the whole ram. You cut it all up nicely, you get it all prepared, and then you stick it on the altar and you just burn it up, the whole thing. Why? It is a burnt offering, verse 18 continuing. It is a soothing aroma, an offering by fire to the Lord. When we get further, we'll talk about that soothing aroma idea. But the burnt offering, remember this, we talked about this, that the burnt offering signified holding nothing back from God. Whenever they brought a burnt offering to the Lord, the whole animal was offered. Lock, stock, and barrel, horns, hooves, the whole deal. Innards, outers, everything. Head, everything went on the altar and was burned up before the Lord, wholly consumed. Hebrews 12, 28 says, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let's show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Our service is all that we are. It's giving everything to the Lord. For, he says in verse 29 of Hebrews 12, our God is a consuming fire. He doesn't want a little bit of your service. He wants all of it. He doesn't want some of your attention. He wants all of it. He doesn't want a part of your life. He wants all of it and all of you for all of eternity. That's not much to ask, is it? It's not much for my creator to ask. He made me. He can have me. So the burnt offering is the second costly offering, and then we come to costly offering number three, and this one intrigues me. Verse 19. Then you shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall slaughter the ram, and take some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, and on the lobes of his son's right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. (laughs) And 
sprinkle the rest of the altar around, or the blood around the altar. I laugh not to be disrespectful, but to say, this is a little weird. You're gonna slaughter this ram, get the blood, and you're gonna, now you got blood dripping on Aaron's earlobe. Careful, you're gonna get it on the clothes. You got blood on the thumb. Careful, that's gonna get on the clothes too. You got blood on the big toe. If he's not careful, that could spatter up on the hem of the robe or the, or the linen tunic. Be careful, Aaron. Oh, wait, verse 21. Then you shall take some of the blood that's on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron, on his garments, on his sons, on his son's garments with him so that he and his garments shall be consecrated as well as his sons and his son's garments with him. And I'm sorry, but you can't shout that out. Now you got blood on the high priestly garments. This is so interesting to me. Earlobes, thumbs, big toes, garments. Blood is now getting all over everything. And remember, at this point, the sin offering for atonement was already offered or was to already have been offered. And then the burnt offering of total commitment also was by then to be nothing but smoldering ashes on the bronze altar. And you come to this third offering, so, so what's this all about? Sin offering's done, so they're atoned for. Burnt offering's done, so the commitment's there. Throughout the rest of this section, with this unique offering, the ram is called the wave or the heave offering. You'll see why. But we will discover when we get down to verse 28 that costly offering number three is the peace offering. And we've studied that one before too. The peace offering, it's also called the fellowship offering. But consider this, with this peace offering, as Aaron and his sons are, they're being consecrated and ordained for ministry, blood is put on the right earlobe. What do you think that's about? God is consecrating what they hear. What they hear. Oh, hear, O oh Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And remember to the Jewish mind, hearing is obeying. Obeying is hearing. Blood on the earlobe, this is about what they hear. And as they hear, they obey. As Paul said in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. You hear the word of Christ and you obey in action because hearing and obeying, they go hand in hand. Blood on the earlobe is what they hear. Blood on the right thumb, consecrating what they do. The, the, the work of their hands. Like Ecclesiastes 9.9 tells us, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Work hard at it. Or as Jesus said in Luke 9.62, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Blood on the right earlobe, what they hear. Blood on the right thumb, what they do. Blood on the right big toe, consecrating where they go. Where are they gonna walk? What direction are they gonna head? Let's consecrate that toe. Because as the toe goes, so goes the foot, so goes the leg, so follows the body. What they hear, what their hands do, where their feet go. Proverbs 16, nine, the man, mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. 
consecration. It's what you hear. It's what you do. It's where you go. Are all these things, my friends, are they all consecrated in your life, in your priesthood? As you follow him, what you hear, what you do, where your feet go, do our plans, our work, our directions, do they bear witness to him? Do do they reveal the life of a priest who has been ordained to follow Jesus, to listen to what Jesus says, to do what Jesus asks, and to walk as Jesus calls? It's a beautiful picture for us. But again, verse 21 says the blood's gonna get on those beautiful woven garments of the high priest. Such craftsmanship. Can you imagine those who are given the spirit of wisdom to design the garments and they put them all together and they do all the stitching and sewing and they find out there's gonna be blood all over these things. Cheryl um, took me out for my birthday for lunch just the other day. By the way, keep her in your prayer. She's landed in Ghana. She's in Accra right now with Christopher. So I got to speak with her just briefly earlier and she's doing well. The flights all went well. She's, she's in country. Time for things to move. But I was out with Cheryl just uh, on uh, th- this past week and we went out to teriyaki time. This, I guess it was on Monday. And teriyaki time in Anacortes and she took me there for my birthday lunch and we got our teriyaki time in the, in the cardboard things. We went up on top of Cap Santee and parked the van, and we had a nice lunch out there looking out over Anacort. It's a beautiful view. Many of you have seen that. Well, we're sitting there in the van, and, I, and I'm wearing um, a, a new flannel that I got for my birthday. As I'm eating my teriyaki time, I look down, and right there, and this is happening more often these days in my 50s, a nice brown dollop of teriyaki sauce is on my new flannel. One drop. Cheryl had said, be careful that you don't get teriyaki sauce on your new flannel. It wasn't five minutes that I said, I got teriyaki sauce on my new flannel. You know, my, my clothes, this is my clothes. Now we've got blood speckling the ephod and the breast piece and the robe and the turban and the crown and the sash and the linen tunic. Reminds me of, of something Jerry Seinfeld said many years ago, watching the commercial and I think it was for shout, and someone got blood, and they were saying, shout will even take blood out of a fabric, and, and Seinfeld said, you know, if you've got blood on a fabric, you've got something more important to worry about than what kind of fabric softener or cleanser you're using. <laughs> but there's gonna be blood on the robes and the clothes. Listen, this is what the Hebrew pastor meant when he said in Hebrews 13, 13, let us go outside the camp bearing his reproach. Let's go out bearing his reproach. We wear the bloodstains of Jesus on our finery, on our priestly garments. We bear on our persons the peace offering, for that's what this is, the peace offering of the blood of Jesus. That as we go, we announce his sacrifice as our only claim to eternal life. It was an ordaining, a consecrating thing to have the peace offering blood sprinkled on the clothing of the high priest, on the earlobe, on the thumb, on the toe, to to give that that idea that he is covered in the blood, not the blood of sacrifice, that's already been covered. He's covered in the blood, not of the burnt offering, that's already fried. No, it's the blood of the peace offering. 
You know what that means? That means this man, this priest, Aaron, his sons, they're walking in fellowship with me. They're at peace with me. And that's how we walk, announcing Jesus, our claim to eternity, because we now have peace with God. Verse 22 says, you shall also take the fat from the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the lobe of the liver and the two kidneys and the fat that's on them and the right thigh, for it is a ram of ordination. I, I, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and one cake of bread and one cake of mi bread mixed with oil and one wafer from the basket of unleavened bread which is set before the Lord and you shall put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and they shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. Still the peace offering, but here it's called a wave offering because they wave them before the Lord. You shall take them from their hands and offer them up in smoke on the altar on the burnt offering. Remember the burnt offering's on the altar, still smoldering there in the ashes. Now you put this on top of the burnt offering for a soothing aroma before the Lord. It's an aroma by fire before the Lord. And then you shall take the breast of Aaron's ram of ordination, same ram, and wave it as a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. So this is for Aaron to eat. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering, a heave offering, a wave offering, all still the peace offering, which was waved and which was offered from the ram of ordination, from the one which was for Aaron and from the one which was for his sons. And by the way, it's the same ram, okay? It shall be for Aaron and his sons as their portion forever from the sons of Israel. It is a heave offering it shall be a heave offering or a wave offering, they're interspersed, from the sons of Israel, from the sacrifices of their peace offerings, even their heave offering to the Lord. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him, that in them they may be anointed and ordained. For seven days, the one of his sons who is priest in his stead, so after Aaron passes away, the next priest to step up, and it's gonna be Eliezer, not Nadab, not Abihu, you'll see why. The priest who is in his stead shall put them on when he enters the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place. So listen, this is all the peace offering. And this third offering in the ordination of Aaron and his sons, the peace offering, it meant fellowship with God, it meant nearness to God, it meant thanksgiving for this relationship, this very special relationship that they now have with God. And most of all, the peace offering meant just that, peace with God. Paul says in Romans 5, 2, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. I love that, we have peace with God. By the way, that's not the peace of God, that's different. That comes by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, making your requests known to God and the peace of God in Christ Jesus will guard your hearts and your minds. That's the peace of God. This is peace with God that they now have and that we have by our anointing, by the blood of Jesus. But note something, because we skipped right on by it, and it is really the key, I think, to the entire 
chapter. Verse 24, if you look back there, says, you shall put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons, and he shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. That is the, the, the wave offering, the substance coming out of the peace offering, the breast and the thigh that they're given, this meat. Give it to Aaron so that then he can offer it, he can wave that to the Lord. And it's so fascinating because there's a Hebrew idiom with a certain word here that we already saw the word, but I didn't tell you what it meant yet. A Hebrew idiom throughout these consecration instructions that powerfully speaks to any priest of God, whether you're Levitical or Melchizedekian, it's the same concept. Look back at verse nine. You shall gird them with sashes, Aaron and his sons, bind caps on them, and they shall have the priesthood by a perpetual statute. So you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. And that's it. Ordain. Verse nine, verse 24. They go literally hand in hand because verse 24 says again, you shall put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his son or his sons. What are you talking about, Rick? In the hands. To ordain in the Hebrew is a Hebrew idiom. It's the word milita. Milita means fill up. When you see the word ordained, fill up. They're, they're gonna be ordained. They're gonna be filled up. And it's followed in that same Hebrew sentence, milita yad achron vachu bene, which is fill up the hands of Aaron and the hands of his sons. Fill up their hands. What does verse 24 tell us? You shall put all these in the hands of Aaron and his sons. I, this just, I love this. It is so profound because Aaron and his sons had nothing to offer. In and of themselves, their hands were empty. Their hands had to be filled up so that they could have something to offer up to God. The peace offering, remember it's a, a heave offering, it's a, a wave offering because the meat of the sacrifice is literally put into the hands of Aaron and his sons. Listen, to be ordained to ministry, not the kind of ordination we talk about in American culture, not a piece of paper that says, I am now officially in ministry. Notice we're talking about the ordination of all priests. All followers of Jesus have this ordination. And that is to be ordained is to fill up the hands of the priest for his ministry. To give the priest what he needs to do what he is called to do. Hey, Aaron, his sons, these guys weren't pros. They had never done this before. The only offering that, that, that we know that they did was, was there at the Passover, three months earlier, the night that they left Egypt, or the night before they left. And yeah, there were, there were offerings that were given over all the way from Abraham, going back even further than that, Cain and Abel. Abel brought his offering of the firstlings of the flock. So there are offerings that have been kind of part of the culture, but now for the first time it's being established as a part of the priestly culture. And Aaron and his sons, they didn't know what to do. It's why the manual's being written. It's why God's giving the instruction. They'd never done this before. Have you ever said that to God? Well, I don't know how to do that. I've never done that before. You feel like maybe the Lord's nudging you or, or like Jake, you raised your hand to ask where the bathroom was and next thing you know, you're the youth pastor? 
Hey, how do I, I don't know what to do. You have an ordination. You just open up your hand to the Lord. You give your hands open and willing. He will fill them. Isn't that remarkable? God fills their hands for the offering that they offer to him. He gives it to, him, to them, and then they turn around and they offer it up to him. God would give these priests everything they needed for a fruitful, vibrant, living ministry, and he will do the same with you and with me. So what's, what's my part? What am I supposed to do? People talk about, you know, having a fruitful ministry like that pastor I told you about years ago who wanted to see fruit in my ministry, and the fruit was the number of students I could check off a list. What do I do? Hey, your part and mine is simple. Lift up your hands. But I don't have anything to offer. Right. The second we realize that, we become more valuable to God because now he can fill our hands with what needs to be offered. We lift up our hands. We lift them up in, in worship. We lift up our hands in trust. Like a child, I, I love that picture. Someone told me years ago about praise with your hands lifted up is like a child lifting up your hands to your dad. Pick me up, dad. Pick me up, father. We lift up our hands in trust. We lift up our hands in prayer. We lift up our hands in obedience. All we do is lift our hands. He fills them. He fills them with the offering, the sacrifice, the ministry, what, what's needed. He gives us everything we need. Do you understand that? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So going back to the hem of the robe, he provides the fruit. It's his fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. And he provides the gifts, the pneumaticos, the spirituals, because they come from him. He even provides the sacrifices, or in the case of Jesus, the sacrifice. They're all his to give. And he gives as we lift up our hands and we lift them right back up as praise and worship to him. And he keeps giving. And we have open hands and we keep lifting up. That's the process but it's costly. I told you it was costly. This is a costly ministry. And watch this, verse 38. Did I read verse 31? And oh, let's go back to verse 31. Check that out. You shall take the ram of the ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket at the doorway of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things by which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration. That is the filling of their hands and their being made holy. But a layman shall not eat them because they are holy. This is specifically for the priest. If any of the flesh of ordination or any of the bread remains until morning, you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. That's not some weird religious thing. That's just God saying, this is significant. And on that day at the tent of meeting, as they eat the bread and the meat, they're having dinner with me. This is a special dinner. You don't take home a doggy bag. You focus on this precious time with me. And if any of the flesh remains, again, till morning, they, they burn it. Verse 35, thus you shall do to Aaron and his sons according to all I have commanded to you, 
you. You shall ordain them through seven days. Each day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. And you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it. And you shall anoint it to consecrate it. For seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. And then the altar shall be most holy. And whatever touches the altar shall be holy. Verse 38. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Watch this. Two one-year-old lambs each day continuously. Dot, dot, dot. That is from the ordination, from the consecration of the bronze altar of sacrifice. From that, as far as God was concerned, they didn't always do it, but as far as God was concerned and what he was asking, Every day, a lamb in the morning, a lamb in the evening, a lamb in the morning, a lamb in the evening, every single day. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, verse 39. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight. There shall be one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of beaten oil and one-fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering with the lamb. And all that we'll get into in Leviticus, Lord willing. The other lamb, you shall offer at twilight, and you shall offer it with it, the same grain offering and the same drink offering as in the morning for a soothing aroma, an offering by fire to the Lord, morning and evening and morning and evening. These offerings go up every single day. Verse 42, it shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations. The burnt offering, that whole commitment, morning and evening. Is your life like that? A continual burnt offering before the Lord, morning and evening, every day, continually giving to the Lord. This is a costly ministry. You, you need to understand, we need to understand. As Jesus once said, you gotta count the cost. You take up your cross and you follow after me, you've got to count the cost. Grace is free, but it's going to ultimately demand your life following after Jesus' will. But never forget in this costly ministry all the blood of the bulls and the rams and the goats and the lambs could never, would never equal the cost of the blood of Jesus. And if you think that he's asking much of you, consider what he did, who became both high priest of our confession and the little lamb slain. I told you his priesthood was different No high priest was ever offered on the altar until Jesus came of the different order, of the different priesthood. By the way, if you've recently paid a cost in ministry, and ministry is just service, in the service of the gospel, in the service of the Lord, in, in the service to which Jesus has called you, if you've had a bad day or a hard time, or even found yourself having to make personal sacrifice, please remember this. Hebrews 12, four says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, which is the Hebrew pastor's gentle way of saying, how bad has it been for you? Have you been on the cross? Did you shed your blood? And if you can say yes, 
I am one of those who lost blood on the field, then the biblical answer to that is praise the Lord that you were counted worthy to suffer like him because this is a costly ministry. It cost him everything to be allowed, to, to be welcomed to bear the bloodstains of his reproach on myself is one of the highest honors we can imagine. And indeed, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But I don't know about you, I know I have yet to shed blood in my costly ministry. It cost him everything. Verse 42, and we'll finish. It shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak with you there. I will Meet there with the sons of Israel, and it shall be consecrated, made holy by my glory. I will, he says again, consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. I, this is just coincidental, but I find it interesting that the Lord their God, you remember the Lord your God? Yahweh ka Elohe? Well, this is the Lord their God. It's the same idea, but it's a different pronoun. It's the Lord their God, and it's <laughs> Yahweh him Elohe. H-E-M. The Lord their God, the Lord their God, the Lord God of the priests, whose hem is of bells and pomegranates. He is Yahweh Hem Eloche. I am the Lord their God. J. Alec Mottier said the consummation of the work of redemption is the Lord's dwelling among his people. That's the whole point of all of this. And even as we go deeper into the sacrifices and offerings and consecrations and ordination, it is all coming to one end, one purpose, and that is that the Lord could dwell among his people. It's all about the dwelling. And Mottier says, it's a truth brought to its intended fulfillment in Christ. And I love that. It's intended fulfillment in Christ. It was intentional. The whole picture, all of this one big, beautiful graphic setup to the intention, which is the dwelling of Christ, and it's a dwelling that cost him everything. Philippians 2.7, he emptied himself. You could put it this way. He emptied himself so that he could fill our hands. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven, and on earth and under the earth, and we even proclaim that right now, that every knee should bow at the name of Jesus and that every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But to get there, he emptied himself. 
That's the intended fulfillment. Do you want to be fully filled? I'm not talking about fulfillment in terms of a satisfied life, you know, or successful business. No, do you want to be not just fulfilled, but fully filled? Not just your hands filled with all needed for ministry, but your heart filled with his presence, your very life filled with his dwelling. The Bible says, Psalm 1611, you will make known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. And in your right hand, there are pleasures forever. John 1, 14, oh, the, the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled, pitched his tent among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 16, for of his fullness, we have all received and grace upon grace. You wanna be fully filled? It comes of the fullness of his abiding, dwelling in you and with you. I'd like to end tonight by praying a final passage. So would you bow with me? And I'm gonna pray Ephesians chapter three, verse 16. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would grant us according to the riches of your glory to be strengthened with power through your spirit in the inner man, the inner woman among us, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith and that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that we may be filled up, Lord, filled up to all the fullness of God. Holy Father, we need that fullness. Not just full hands for ministry, Lord, but full hearts for longevity, but more than that. Father, I pray for the fullness of your abiding presence. We ask for fully filled lives because you dwell and you fill with your spirit, Lord, every aspect of who we are, producing that fruitfulness, bringing the gifts needed that we might love each other more. Fully fill us, Lord, for all that you've called us to. And would you remove from our mentality the idea that, okay, so what do I have to do next? and replace it with hands simply lifted up to you, prayer and worship, Lord, in offering, in willingness, in obedience. Fully fill your priesthood, Lord Jesus, so that when the kingdom opens up and we come walking in, we will be ready to serve. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.